0: You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Calkins, and today we have another special feed drop for you. I had the chance to talk to super librarian Nancy Pearl about her new book, The Writer's Library. Please enjoy our conversation. I'm so excited to introduce Nancy Pearl. I don't know if she needs an introduction, but just in case, a best-selling author, librarian, literary critic, and devoted reader, Nancy Pearl, speaks about the importance and pleasure of reading um, at libraries, at literary organizations. She's on NPR. She has a show on the Seattle Channel. Among her, many other honors are the 2011 Librarian of the Year Award from Library Journal, the 2011 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association, She's the creator of the internationally recognized, if all of Seattle or all of insert your town here, read the same book and um, possibly coolest. She was the inspiration for the Archie McPhee librarian action figure. So thank you so much for being with us tonight to talk about your new book, Nancy.
1: Oh, Emily, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It's great. My pleasure. King County is one of my very favorite library systems. so I'm always glad to do things for King County.
0: Well, thank you. So in the book, you open a lot of the, I guess, can you tell us a little bit about what the book is before yeah. we move
1: So um The Writer's Library has the subtitle, The Authors You Love on the Books That Changed Their Lives. And it's a collection of 22 interviews with 23 writers that I did with a good friend of mine, Jeff Schwager, who's a Seattle playwright um, and writer. Um, We traveled around the country about a year ago. Uh, interviewing the majority of these authors in their homes. Uh, some of them we interviewed um, at places that meant a lot to them. Louise Erdrich, we interviewed at her bookstore. Um, in suburban Minneapolis, um, Maza Mengista, we interviewed at the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn, where she had just had um, a collection of photographs, a display of photographs that related to her new book, The Shadow King. So um, it was really, the reason there's a discrepancy, 22 interviews, 23 writers, is that uh, Jeff and I interviewed Michael Shabon and his wife, Ayelet Waldman, together, sitting around their dining room kitchen table, um, drinking tea and eating, they were eating uh, peanut butter and banana sandwiches. So if that question ever comes up on Jeopardy!, what's uh, Michael Shabon's favorite sandwich? It's you know, <laughs> peanut butter and banana um, it, so, and what we talked to these writers about was not not the books they've written, but the books they've read. And I've always felt that really, really, what you read is who you are. And um, Osip Mandelstam, I just ran across this quotation recently. Osip Mandelstam, the great um, Russian poet writer, said, um, if you want to know by my biography, ask me about the books I've read. And I think that's so that's so wonderful and so true. And I wish I had had that quote in my head before we started this project.
0: So you open most of the interviews by asking writers what books were important to them as children. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us what books were important to you as a child.
1: Uh, um, oh, so, so. Uh, Oh my gosh! You know, I had this wonderful, I had this wonderful librarian um, when I was a kid at my public library in Detroit, Michigan. Um, it was the Parkman Branch Library, and I was one of those. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a house that <clears throat> that would now be called dysfunctional, but back then. I just knew it wasn't where I wanted to be, and it just didn't feel very safe to me. So I spent all my time at the library, and Miss Whitehead, my librarian at my library, that's how I thought about it, Miss Whitehead um, really, really recognized my needs to be to, – really, she opened the world to me, which is what librarians do – And when she met me, all I read were horse and dog books. I was about (laughs) three years old and, you know, and if you went with me, Emily, to that library today, um, I could show you on the shelf, we could walk into the children's room and I could show you the shelves where the horse and dog books were kept because they were pulled out of the fiction section, the kids' fiction section, and shelved separately. Oh, and interesting. They were shelved separately just for me because I think was <laughs> right there. But Miss Whitehead really, Miss um, Whitehead one day came up to me and she said, um, Nancy, would you like to be the very first person in this library to read the new Marguerite Henry horse book. Well, I mean, how could you, like, of course, like, (laughs) oh my God, I loved Miss of Oshanko And here was the new horse book. So I held out my hands for the new book. And in the first example of like bait and switch that I was ever introduced to, Miss Whitehead said, oh, but before you read this, Nancy, here's another book I want you to read. And so by means of, of doing that over and over again, and of course I fell for it every time, Miss Whitehead introduced me to, um, uh, she was Canadian. So I grew up on a you know steady diet of British children's literature. So The Wind in the Willows and Mary Poppins and The Hobbit and The Children of Green. I I pronounce it no, K-N-O-W-E, all of those books Miss Whitehead gave to me. So, you know, I have very many horse and dog fape still from that period, The Dog Next Door, Bonnie's Boy, oh my gosh, Um, (laughs) Misty of Shinko Teague, uh, you know, all of those books, but when Miss Whitehead introduced me to um, the Lord of the Rings series, you know, now you can just go to the library and check them out one right after another, or you can buy the whole set together. But when I read The Fellowship of the Ring, we had to wait two years for the next <laughs> oh, one. no! It was just, it was, it was what kids who, who you were introduced to the Harry Potter books right from the beginning had, had that, that time lag. Um, but, you know, in it, it, with the Lord of the Rings, it end with the Fellowship of the Ring, it ends with, you know, Frodo and Sam running away from Boromir and he's going to kill them. And, you know, like we had to wait two years to find out whether they were going to survive or not. So my father's dragon, which my school librarian gave me to read, was another favorite. All of those books. So actually, I mean, I could go on. I love
0: <laughs> That leads beautifully into my next question, which is that a lot of the writers in the book talk about the fact that as kids, they read genre fiction, right? They read Lord of the Rings. They read lots of science fiction, some of the sort of classic adventure st- series, both books that were intentionally written for kids and uh, books for adults, like genre right. fiction for adults. Right. And whether they still read genre was a little more varied and it's, Really fascinating to see how people talk about genre fiction. But I wonder what you make of the fact that all of these writers who overwhelmingly aren't writing genre fiction now
1: were reading it early on. What do you? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was so surprising was. The number of science fiction readers, especially um, as kids, and how much science fiction meant to them. I think the the author who was mentioned by m- most uh, the the writer who most writers referenced as one of their favorite writers was Lori Moore, but who is a great short story and novelist. But I love her short stories. But the author that the book that so many people said was so important to them was Watership Down. Mm-hmm. I, I And Watership Down, I, I, it's not, and they just all said, you know, it's not a book about, it's, it's not about rabbits, which is what, how you would, how one would describe it if one were not a fan of Watership Down. And Madeline Miller, one of the people that we interviewed, author of course of Circe and Song of Achilles, was one of those people who loved that book and not only loved the book, but she read it because she. it was published in 1972. And she read it at the same time that she was really getting introduced to Greek um, mythology and Roman, Greek and Roman mythology. So she read it as as a kind of Hero myth. Mm-hmm. And the last hundred pages just left her breathless. I mean, when you read what Madeline Miller said about that book, if you haven't read Watership Down, or if like me, you probably read it, but it didn't make any big impression on me, you'll want to go back and reread it or read it for the first time because of the way specifically that Madeline talks about it. But I think that the genre fiction um why it's so popular or was so popular. I, I think, you know, genre fiction is dominated by story. And I think that when you're talking about kids and kids reading, kids read for story. You know, they don't have a lot of patience for a lot of dense narrative and and character development. I mean, they want something to happen. And you can see if you read the Harry Potter series, those, the first book is all, it's all one event after another. I mean, you can see why eight-year-olds loved that book because it doesn't stop to describe anything. It just, you know, Harry's under, he's in his hidey hole and then the owl comes and, you know, he gets rescued and then he goes to um you know has the sorting hat and all of those things and with each succeeding book as the kids got older it's more complex and more until the last two you know are very very slow moving mm-hmm. compared to the first so i think that 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 kind of genre reading makes a whole a whole lot of sense and it, it's still you know many many people even never outgrow that, and why should they? If that's what you're looking for is a good story, you're gonna, you know, the chances are you're gonna find it more often than not in a genre novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so
0: going back to that point yeah. you we're making about Watership Down and Madeline yeah. Miller making you want to reread, um, I'm wondering if there were any other, if any of the interviews inspired you to pick up things. And reread them that you hadn't read in a long time.
1: Yes. Um, So, you know, because we were at these writers houses, we could see and and many of the writers, T.C. Boyle, Tom Boyle, for example, we walked around his he has bookshelves all over his house. He lives in um, a Frank Lloyd Wright. Prairie style, the first Prairie style home west of the Mississippi. Oh my gosh, TC Boyle lives in in Montecito, um, California, outside of Santa Barbara. Um, but we could look at the books on his bookshelves, and there's something so wonderful about a writer that you admire, as I admire. T.C. Boyle, Tom Boyle, and seeing books that you loved on his bookshelf. And so one of the books that a novel that I loved, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize several years ago, um, that I haven't met very many people who have read, is called The Woman Who Lost Her Soul. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, by Bob Shakoshis. And there it was on Tom Boyle's bookshelf. And I said, Oh, my God, I love that book. And he said, Oh, I love it, too. So now I feel like yeah, I want to go back and reread it. Um, but it's a very powerful it's a big book, and there's not a lot of happiness in it, <laughs> in that book. So I'm I am not recommending it to anybody at this time, I think, at least wait yeah. till spring. Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. And then John Updike, The Maples Stories, uh, which is, a, you know, kind of a lesser known John Updike. So that kind of thing um, was just so... So interesting. I a book that I did <clears throat> that I did go back and a book that I had never read, just read a lot about. After we interviewed Leila Lalami, mm-hmm. um, who is a Moroccan-American writer, um, she talked a lot about Edward Said's um, masterpiece Orientalism, and talked about what it was like to grow up for her to grow up in Morocco, um, a child of colonialism because the French were still were still ruling Morocco, mm-hmm. still owned Morocco um, while she was growing up, and so reading that, um, I, I found really really interesting, and it just sort of changes Edward Said's book changes the way you look at um, or think about um, colonial societies and what it means to be, to live in one and what it means to be somebody in a country who has colonies. Um, So that was really, really interesting to me. But one of the things, Emily, that, you know, each of the interviews, each of the 22 interviews is is really different from every other one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's because we didn't go into these interviews with a list of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, we 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 went in what we usually began with me asking that question that you that you that you started with but then we let the interview go wherever the writer wanted to take it mm-hmm. and it was pretty amazing to to get to know these writers in a different way than most interviews have you look have you learn about them because we're not talking about them as writers we're talking about them as readers and Mm -hmm. that's a whole different view of them i I think a more i i guess i would say a a more realistic view or a more personal view (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a way so yes that was
0: were there any that really surprised you i mean somebody who you thought oh this person you know, they just pulled this book out of left field, and I never would have guessed that this was a favorite for this yeah. writer.
1: Yes, yes, uh, uh, Viet Tan Nguyen is the other person who loved the woman who lost her soul. <laughs> so, I mean, and and uh, and also um, Charles Johnson and Jonathan Lethem who are very different writers. They're, you know, they're they're not the same age. Uh, they grew up in very different circumstances. Of course, Charles Johnson is African-American. Jonathan Lethem is not. But they both talked about how important Philip K. Dick, the hmm. science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick was to them. And that was just so... Amazing. Um, I yell at Waldman, Michael Shabon's wife, talking about how much she loved the Happy Hollisters, which, I, I did, do you know those, that series? Okay, mm-hmm. so it's way earlier, but it was one of those, like the Bobsy Twins, mm-hmm. you know, it was written by many different people, and it was one of those series that... Um, that probably wasn't as popular as the Bobsey twins, but there are many happy Hollister fans out there. And I know when they see that I yell at Walt and love that book, they're going to,
0: yes. Yeah, that sort of moment, that like little spark of right. recognition like yeah, you had with TC right. Boyle. Mm-hmm. I think there's a point in the book where you're talking with somebody and you mention that you love um Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising sequence right. and that your favorite is Over the Understone and yeah. I put like a big red exclamation point that that's my favorite as well. That's yeah. just when you see that connection. Yeah. It's it's right. a new way of connecting with a person.
1: Yeah. And I think it's um I, I, you know, I mean, I don't have a lot of small talk. I'm not, I'm not good at parties or anything because all I can ever think to talk about is books. But when you, you know, when you find somebody who loves a book that you love, you immediately feel like, oh my gosh, we're friends. Whether we're ever going to see each other, you know, in person or not, we have that connection. So, yeah. yeah. The other one that I,
0: I don't think it's mentioned in the book, but I've like heard through the librarian grapevine that you love
1: is Codename Verity. Is that true? Oh, no, that's totally true. And it's a wonderful audio book. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So just if you haven't read Codename Verity, everyone, it's a World War II story that is Absolutely fantastic. And yeah. a librarian favorite, I think, not just yeah. Nancy and I, but
1: lots of librarians. Right. And so it's a, the it's a sort of book that you get to the end and then you realize that you need to start all over again because you want to see how how the author worked it out. Elizabeth Wine, yeah. I think her name is, how she worked it out to get to that place is a really wonderful book.
0: Yeah, it's called Code Name Verity, like the word for truth, Verity. Yeah, um, let's see. So uh, one of the other interviews I love, uh, well, I mean, they're all great. And like you said, they're so different. But in um, Jonathan Leatham's interview, he talks about secret genres, which is this idea that there are these categories or sort of these subcategories that don't have any marketing, no like special section in the library, but it has all of these rules, these sort of unspoken formal rules. Um, Do you have any favorite secret genres? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, You know, I, I don't... I I'm not not the way not that's not how I would think about it. I mean, I think that I you know, my favorite books are are just character driven novels that are really well written. And and that's not exactly a secret genre. <laughs> but I wonder if you could talk I wonder if you could consider books written in the second person, like Joshua Ferris's Then We Can sure. to the End, if if that could be a, a genre or Um, uh, what's his name? The Virgin Suicides. Yeah. um, Jeffrey Eugenides. Jeffrey Eugenides. Right. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Yeah.
0: I was just so sort of taken with this because I think the way that we sort of categorize books and, um, I really like romance and romance is very, not only has tons of subgenres, but has all of these sort of rules about it. And that's what I like about it. Right. We were talking before about how comforting it is to read something where you kind of know where you're going.
1: Right. Um, Especially at this time in our, in our country's life where we have no idea where we're going and which is why, I mean, my favorite romance writer I'm not a big romance reader but I love I adore Georgette Heyer and and I love those books because you know from the moment that that the heroine meets this guy and says that he's the most odious person she's ever met you know by the end of the book that they're going to get together and that's very comforting
0: yeah And we were talking a little bit before. What other comforting things have you been reading?
1: Um, (laughs) I've been reading a lot of books published by this publishing company called Dean Street Press. And they have a section. What they do, what they're doing is reprinting books um, by little known or underappreciated writers that were published from the 1920s to the 1960s. So you, and they're not, it's not that they're, it's that I, I think of them as light reading, but you know that does cover the end of World War One and you're going through World War Two. So, and World War II is a big, um, a big subject for the, many of these writers. But you know, I, I still find them very comforting in the sense that World War Two. World War I was awful. World War II was was awful. The blitz going through that was terrible. And it changed the world forever, both those wars. But now we're done with that, you know? I mean, it's not so present the way everything now is so in your face and so present. So I'm finding those books very, very, very very comforting. There's a there's a book called um, The Women in Black, which doesn't sound particularly comforting, <laughs> but it's a wonderful Australian novel set in the 1950s at a Sydney department store, a department store in Sydney, and it's about the women who work in the dress department. And it's 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 almost the closest thing to Barbara Pym. Mm-hmm. somebody else who I um who I very much some of her books I very very much love um, there's a writer named Elizabeth Fair. I mean the nice thing is these books are they brought them back in print and what I'm finding is I don't want anything I don't want to read anything that's upsetting mm-hmm. you know i I just want. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe what I want. Um, And, you know, and and this we couldn't have done the writer's library this year. I mean, you know, everything was done by December Mm -hmm. of of 2019. And um, thank goodness, because otherwise it would all have to be over Zoom.
0: Yeah, which is not quite the same. No,
1: no. There's
0: a book, thinking about those Dean Street Press books, there's a book from the, I think it's from the 50s, called The Dud Avocado. Yeah. The Dud Avocado. Yep. yep. The, and I feel like it falls into that sort of, it's sort of like a, it's like a madcap comedy, sort right. of, where she yep. like goes off with this guy and she gets herself into all this trouble, but it's right. very, like, light and funny. Yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, that's like the other thing that I'm thinking of, um, a sort of a comfort read, which I haven't actually gone back to, but now I'm itching to go over to my shelf and pull it off. Is um, MFK Fisher
1: uh-huh. kind
0: of has that energy, that sort of like man cap, but also that time period. Like right. you said, like it's over and yeah. it has this this arc, and, and it's there's the sense that it's finished and right. it's kind of old
1: fashioned. Yeah. And these books are very old fashioned. Um, but i just i just love them and i have to say for ebook readers uh, uh, most of those dean street press books are $2.99 or $3.99 and you know i'm somebody who i mean that's what the library's for i you know i support my library but if you can't get the books at the library then they're very inexpensive and great fun yeah.
0: Do you, speaking about your e-reader, uh, are you an e-reader
1: person or do you prefer? I am, an, e- I am an e-reader person, but I have to say um, I really prefer to read paper, uh, you know, to read a real book,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even though I know it's a real book. Um, I, but I, I really like e-readers because I can read in the middle of the night without turning on the light. Mm hmm. And I have to say, all those Dean Street books are perfect for the middle of the night reading. Yes, yeah, <laughs> they sound like middle of the yeah. night. Reading. Yeah, right. <laughs> sort of like the, you know, a cup of hot milk.
0: Of um. So, in the book, you talk a lot. You talk to these writers about what matter to them. books that matter to them as readers. And I'm wondering if you as a writer have books that are important to you as a writer that are different from the books that
1: are important to you as a reader. So I have to, I have to preface that by saying, you know, I, I didn't, I really don't consider myself a writer. I mean, the, the only thing I feel like I've really written is my novel, you know, and that made that, that, that I can say I'm a writer, you know, because I, did this novel, but all the other books are, which I'm very proud of, are just books about not just they're books about books, and mm-hmm. so they're not creative in the same way that writing a novel is. But one of the things that writing the novel, one of the one of the unfortunate repercussions of writing George and Lizzie, is that I is that I have this tendency now to, when I'm reading a book, to, to sort of see the scaffolding behind it, Mm -hmm. you know, to see it, you know, and I'll get to a point in a book and I'll say, oh, that's why that happened, you know, on page seven, Mm -hmm. this had to happen here. And for me, who just sort of loves to kind of fall into a book and not, not think, just be there in the book, that's, a kind of uncomfortable feeling. So we mm-hmm. don't love it. But so many of these writers used reading as a means to make them better writers, mm-hmm. not just, not just, um, I mean, Lori, Laurie Frankel, for example, um, Laurie, Laurie chooses basically chooses Basically, Lori is always working on a novel, so she's working all the time on either you know rewriting and doing editing her novel that she's finished, or she's writing a new novel. And she chooses what to read based on what 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 will help her with the book that she's writing. So now she's working on her new book, which is going to come out in um, next year is told from the point of view of three girls, triplets. And, and it's told from each one of them in turn, it's called one, two, three. And so she was, when we interviewed her, she was reading all of these books that are told from multiple viewpoints. And, um, Oh, somebody else did the same. Oh, Andrew Sean Greer, who wrote the book Less, which mm-hmm. won the Pulitzer in 2017. He he said if he starts reading a book that is not going to help him learn to be a better writer, he just stops reading it. Hmm. And and even Laurie is, I think, the youngest person that we interviewed in the in the youngest. I think the youngest writer that we interviewed in the book And um, Russell Banks is the oldest person that we interviewed in the book. And Russell said that that's how he read, too. He read to become a better writer. And he said in this new book that he's finished um, or is working on, I guess, he reread The Death of Ivan Illich, the wonderful Tolstoy novella, because there was something in that that he he felt would help him write this section that he was working on, that Tolstoy had done something that really reverberated for him and that he needed to learn how Tolstoy did it. That's really, so like I read as a reader, Mm -hmm. not a, not a writer.
0: Yeah, I thought it was so interesting, because on one hand, you have Laurie, who is saying, oh, I read, I think also in that interview, she talks about how she was trying to read more first person, uh, which she doesn't normally, for whatever, read. And then you have other people, and I'm not sure, I'm trying to think who said this, but a couple of people who said, oh, I think Susan Choi very specifically says, when I'm writing a novel, I don't read fiction at all. So sort of this interesting mix of people who either are really looking to sort of build on what they're reading or are trying to keep other people's voices kind of out of their, from right. creating into their own. Writing.
1: Yeah. And I think if you're somebody who reads f- for voice or if voice is really important to you, as it is to me, I can see why you wouldn't, why you wouldn't want to read books in which that voice might kind of sneak its way into your head. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing George and Lizzie, That it didn't matter to me what I read, because the voice of the narrator in George and Lizzie* was so clear to me that nothing was gonna, you know, nothing was gonna was gonna was gonna sneak its way in. I Mm -hmm. was, you know, really pretty pretty straightforward.
0: Uh, so you mentioned at the beginning that you co-wrote this book or you did yeah. all these interviews yeah. with your friend. How, yeah. What is it like working in a team instead of the generally solo exercise of writing?
1: Right. What a good question. Um, I, I think um, the the whole book was Jeff's idea. Um, he had had, he, we had, we met because he um, was doing a project for the Ah uh, Washington State Jewish Historical Society. and they were um, doing um, a project called well a project honoring twenty Jewish women in Washington State. And I was one of the people that they wanted to honor, which was an honor. And uh, Jeff um, interviewed all all of the honorees separately. And he and when he interviewed me, it became really clear that, that we just loved. We both loved talking about books, and you know, we 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 loved enough of the same books that there was that connection. And then it would be fun to argue about books that you don't <laughs> uh, that, that you don't love. So we started kind of hanging out. Um, you know, he's like I feel like he's like a little brother. Um, and one day he said, um, "You know, I have this idea for a book." called The Writer's Library. What if we went around and took pictures of writers' physical libraries and did a little bit of an interview with them? And it would be just this beautiful coffee table book. And I said, um, well, you know, I'm not a coffee table book kind of person. And, um, that just, that didn't, inter- it really didn't. interest me. But the, the idea of interviewing writers, I think, would be really fun about the books that they that are in their libraries, whether their libraries are physical um, or whether they're libraries that are in their heads, which is, I think, an interesting question, too. So. Um, so all you know, all props to Jeff, because this was his idea and. Um, and by and large, it was a very good experience that, you know, there were a couple of difficult times. One, when we had to decide who we were going to interview. Um, and so we each made a list of the authors that we both wanted to interview. And, and the ones that were on both lists, the, those were very easy and we could, we could start the process of asking the, those writers if they would be in the book and, you know, the the rest, the negotiations, you know, I won't I it didn't come to fisticuffs. I can <laughs> and voices were not raised, but there were some really, you know, I mean, I do remember saying when Jeff suggested somebody, I I do remember saying, no, just no. <laughs> no. And then um the book is we, we deliberately, we wanted, it's all American writers, but we wanted to do, we wanted to do a wide range of writers. So it's America, it's the melting pot America. Um, I, Leila Lalami from, you know, who came to the United States as an adult from Morocco. Um, one of the most interesting interviews, I think, in the book is with um, Luis Urea. Mm -hmm. Who really grew up straddling um, the Mexican-American border. He was born in Tijuana. His father was Mexican. His mother was American. And really, their marriage, his parents' marriage, as he explained to us, was really... You know, they really fought over whether Luis was going to be Mexican or American. And one of the ways that played out was in the books that his mother picked for him, which were all by American writers and the books that his father picked for them, which were by Mexican writers. And I have to say the story that Luis told us about um Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, or not Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, is just a a wonderful, wonderful, very funny story that I still smile about every time I I think about Louise's mother reading him Tom Sawyer and Louise's reaction. Um,
0: Can you tell us who, someone that you really wanted to get in the book who wasn't available or...
1: Yeah, definitely. So we really, we really wanted to interview Tobias Wolf. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, This boy's life is probably his best known one, but also that he's a wonderful short story writer. And Jeff and I both admired him Well, he was working on a new book. And you know, he said when he got done with that, he'd be happy to be interviewed. But by that time, the manuscript was done and we had to turn it in. We really wanted to interview Toni Morrison, but mm-hmm. she was very ill, of course, and then died. Sadly, we lost, you know, that would have been so amazing. And we really wanted to interview Alice Monroe mm-hmm. um, because we, Jeff and I both admire her so greatly, um, but she's kind of retired from writing. She's in her eighties and wasn't doing any interviews. And we really wanted to interview Lori Moore. Mm-hmm. Oh, we so much wanted to interview Lori Moore, but Lori Moore wasn't doing or didn't do in-person interviews. She just did email interviews. And Jeff and I at that time really felt that it was important to do these all in person. And then we couldn't ever, we couldn't ever find ourselves in the same city that Donna Tart was in. Mm-hmm. And we both wanted Donna Tartt. We really wanted her, you know, her childhood reading and all of that. So we decided to do Donna Tart's by email. Um, and now we're just both kicking ourselves that we were so stubborn and didn't do it with Lori Moore. So, yeah, um, yeah, those. So those. There are lots of authors. There's so many more authors that I wish we could, in we could do an interview, and you know we could have interviewed, and people have been saying, "Do you think you'll do a, a follow up?" And I don't want to do a follow up by Zoom. Um, I feel really strongly about that; that it wouldn't be the same as being in in their homes. Um, the authors were wonderful. I mean, they were so generous with their time. They were so generous in having us come to their houses and, you know, see where they wrote. And it was a pretty great experience.
0: Yeah, there's a real there's a real warmth to the book. And I think that experience that you're talking about really comes through. I am not much of a nonfiction reader, uh, and I just found it so it's just like being in a room with someone. And like you said, like there's nothing better than talking about books. So what a,
1: that's great.
0: And I feel like it really, you can see that, you can feel that in the book, this sort of, this joy and enthusiasm around reading. So I hope that you'll have an opportunity to do it in
1: person someday. I I hope so too. It would be so great. Um, Oh, I was just going to say that. um, So many many of these writers, I think, are not particularly well-known. Um, and I know I, I've got an email from a cousin of mine who said she's so embarrassed she only really ever heard of seven of the writers, of the 22 writers, and she considered herself a reader. But I think that was the point of the book in a way, that we really wanted to introduce writers who who might not be... Um, as well known, I mean, Jonathan Lethem. Yes. Every, you know, Dave Eggers. Um, yes. But how many people have read Vanda Vida, who is happens to be Dave Eggers wife and has a new book coming out and is a wonderful, wonderful writer. So part of it was we wanted to we wanted we wanted people to read this book and have their to be read list just Explode. explode. <laughs> and so at the end of each interview, we pulled out about 10 titles from the interview that the authors were particularly excited about.
0: Yes. Well, that certainly happened to me. I was like, oh no, <laughs> too many books, too little time, and right. now so many more. Right. But I think even some of the writers who I had heard of but not necessarily read, you know, hearing right. from them made me curious about their work in yes. a way. So, yeah. Um, yeah. there's certainly a, a bunch more that I'm going to look into, but I think we can go, we'll go to audience questions now. Uh, and there's just one for now. So if you have questions, don't hesitate to put them in the question that little ask a question feature down at the bottom there. Uh, and this is a question from Marion Webb and it said, uh, Marion Webb says, Nancy, do you know, furrowed middle brows choices?
1: Yeah. Do I? Those are my favorite books from Dean Street Press are The Furrowed Middlebrow. I mean, <laughs> I just think it's such a fabulous name for a collection of books. And and I guess I realize that that's what I've been reading my whole life. <laughs> but I mean, that whole idea of reprinting books from, from that period, the 20s to the 60s, it really inspired me to, um, on uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, Every day I post a backlist title of the day, um, a book from well, it could be from any any time period, but just an older title that I really wish more people would read. And, And I think that's one of the one of the things that that we kind of make a mistake in, because any book that you haven't read is a new book. So, to you know, just because a book came out this month doesn't make it any better than, I mean, I just think about the books that were published in the 60s, um, Reynolds Price's books or, you know, just people, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful novels. And so I've been doing that. that, that really gives me a purpose to get up in the morning is to pick my backlist book of the day. How do you decide which one you're going to do? It's just I look at my bookshelves and I think, oh, this would be a good one. Or I look at, um, you know, the first book that I wrote for Libraries Unlimited was called Now Read This and it's books published between 1978 and 1998. So I go through there and I, Mm -hmm. you know, say, oh, that was a wonderful novel, you know, that kind of thing. I am curious how you uh,
0: keep track of what you read. Like, do you have the world's longest Goodreads list? No, I don't. Do you? Do you? Do uh, I do. I do do Goodreads. I started when I was like fresh out of library school. So it's getting pretty long.
1: But wow. it's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, mostly what I do, I I have a terrible memory for most things, but I do remember books. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, usually can put a book together with an author by picturing it on a library shelf, very, very strangely. So um, so I have that, you know, I, I mean, I, I can remember books that way. And then I do, you know, and then I have all the booklust books, which are basically the books that I've read. Um, and then I do a lot of Book talks at mm-hmm. libraries and um, literacy organizations, and so I have a record of what I talked about each year, and some mm-hmm. of those go back like twenty years. So that has, but I sometimes go back and and look and say, oh, I talked about this in, you know, nineteen eighty. And I'll think I don't even remember that book, you know, like, <laughs> really? um, but mostly I can still. If I like a book enough to talk about it, then it sort of becomes part of me. That's how I feel about it. You know.
0: Well, that's the that's the Susan Orland's introduction, right? right. It's the the library is not necessarily your physical library, but it's right. the library that's yes. that's with
1: you. All yeah, things. And we wanted to interview, we wanted to include Susan Orlean um, and interview her for the book itself. But we could never be in the same city. You said, when we were on the East Coast, she was on the West Coast and vice versa. And so finally, we had to just turn in the manuscript and um, we just had the idea of asking her to do um, a foreword. And she was gracious enough to agree to do it. And it's lovely.
0: It is. Yeah. Really it's a lovely, it's a yeah. lovely forward. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so let's see. Um, there's lots of chatter in the chat about audiobooks. And we were talking before uh, before the event started that you're a big audiobook listener. Do you have a uh, favorite narrators?
1: Oh, yeah, I, almost any British narrator. Yes. <laughs> you know, Juliet Stevenson, I, I think, is just wonderful. Um, I had a wonderful time listening to uh, Mrs. Gaskell's books, North and South, and um, Wives and Daughters. Mm-hmm. But really, really any any British narrator <laughs> will do it for me.
0: Yeah. Just something about that. Yeah. Fancy accent.
1: Right. Right. Uh, let's
0: see. So Cheryl wants to know, uh, when you interviewed Dave Eggers and his wife, did they have
1: separate bookshelves? So we were supposed to interview, um, we had a few married couples in mind um, that we wanted to interview together as we did Michael and I Yell It. Um, And we were all set to interview Dave and Vendela together. But then um, there was an illness in the family, and so we had to do them separately in separate trips to Northern California. So I don't know if they have a separate bookshelves. Um, yeah, but let me just say that Dave Eggers is Jeff and I left the interview with Dave Eggers thinking that we needed to call him St. Dave. I mean, he is the most generous, the the number of nonprofits that he has set up devoted to helping kids in need Mm -hmm. is absolutely amazing. And he does such good, 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 good work. I just I, I always liked him from afar, but meeting him and I had not met him before this, and meeting him and just, you know, seeing what he's done for reading and for writing, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, he's he's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Uh, related to that, were there challenges uh when you interviewed Michael Shaven and Islet Weldman together. Was it was it harder to interview a couple than it was to
1: interview individuals? You know, funnily enough, it wasn't harder. Um it, we we were very um Jeff and I were very conscious of the fact that of the two, Michael is clearly the better known mm-hmm. writer. Um, but um Ayelet wrote a series of mysteries, the mommy track mysteries, which are Great, um, which are great fun, and then some um, other novels and and some nonfiction books. So we we were aware that we didn't want um, we you know that we wanted Ayala to be to feel it as included um, in in the interview. But what you get in that interview, I think, is not only a sense of what they read, but you really get a lovely picture of their marriage,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and and, and and what you see is that it's a very loving relationship. And one of the most touching things is, is that we asked each of them if there was a book that they wish that they had written. And Ayelet said, if I could have written Cavalier and Clay, you know, I could die happy, um, which was, of course, Michael's Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Um, and, and, you know, in all seriousness, she said that. Um, and I thought that was really, just really, really lovely.
0: Yeah, I agree that I think that interview is one of my favorites because it's, you just can, it's just like a little window into their life yeah. with each other yeah. and how they think about reading and writing together. And right. I, I really liked that one. Yeah, good, good. Uh, let's see. So Devin wants to know how do you prioritize what you read? What's your triage process yeah. for your to
1: read file? Um, how do I prioritize? Well. Because I don't read any books that I'm not enjoying, I, you know, I, I stop immediately if, if I, hmm, let's see, I have just, I, how do I prioritize? I guess it's just, it's just as unregulated as uh, that I finish a book and whatever book pops into my mind is the book that I'll read next, Um, you know, so I don't have a list that I'm going to read and check off. Just whatever. Just whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good answer. Sorry, Devin.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then Becky says you have a bookshelf behind you. What kind of books do you collect?
1: Um, So these, I am not a collector of books. Jeff is a collector of books. These are all, basically, these are review copies that publishers send me that they want me to read and review them, you know, talk about them on Morning Edition. So these and then I have all my jigsaw, well, some of my jigsaw puzzles that I've been doing during the pandemic. Um, so these are not, um, I, I don't consider these my books. You know, they're just here today, gone tomorrow, basically. But the books that I that I do keep are books that um, have meant a lot to me. So I have a lot of old children's books. But because I'm not a collector, I don't care what condition they're in. And mostly they're in terrible condition because I found them at library book sales and things like that. So all of my favorite writers, you know, I'm never going to read these books again. But I, I have all of the Betty Cavanna books, which were teen, teen, you know, books for teens when I was, you know, that age, um, I have all the Mary Stoltz books, who was a writer that I really admired, um, who just was a wonderful, very different writer for teens. Her books are great, um, you know. And I have my favorite children's children's books, um, and then with the adult books, it's mostly uh, just books that I know that I'll go back to and reread, and a lot of and a lot of really silly um a lot of wonderful comfort reads elizabeth Cadell, for example de stevenson i mean they're just books that you kind of pick up at, at bad times and you know they get you through those times
0: yeah let's see we've got a few more uh this is let's see do you have any did you have any moments of or experiences of serendipity when you were working on the writer's library
1: Um, I would say probably not, no, not that kind of, not that kind of, um, you know, aha moment. I guess, you know, one of the people that we interviewed was Richard Ford, who is from Jackson, Mississippi and knew Eudora Welty. And that was a kind of, you know, his stories about, Eudora Welty Mm -hmm. were kind of um wonderful moments because well, because I love her. I loved her books and um I thought she was amazing. So but but that kind of serendipity, no. I have to say if you're going to, you know, Vermont and you're driving trying to find breadloaf writers conference and it's a rainy day or whatever. You know, your GPS, no matter what what uh, map thing you use is not going to work <laughs> That was like we went round and round and round in circles. So we will remember if we're trying yeah. to get to breadlock. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Paper map. Indeed. Exactly. Right.
0: OK. And I think this is a good one to wrap up, wrap up on, which is what are you working on now?
1: Um, I'm really, there's a character in George and Lizzie that I sometimes think I would like to write more about and, um, and it's Maverick who was Lizzie's boyfriend in high school. And now he's in his fifties and he's a failed, he feels like he's never done anything right in his life. And he lives in Seattle in 2020 um, so I, you know, I'm feeling like I could have a lot of fun. Uh, well, 2000 before the pandemic, 2018. So I feel like I could do a, I could have a lot of fun with um, talking about his life in, in Seattle and what it's like to feel you're a failure at the age of 50. Oh, and then this is the best part. Then he learns that he has a child that he never knew and and so you know there's all of that so this is all like going around in my head but writing a novel is really hard and it takes a lot of stick-to-itiveness um and i'm not sure i have that that still but i don't know
0: so, maybe. I love ever, so. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much uh for being here It's a wonderful conversation Well, Emily,
1: thank you. This has just been absolutely just terrific. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much. Our pleasure.